For um, four summers, I worked at a Bible camp. Uh, two of those summers I worked as a counselor, uh, and two of those summers I worked as program staff. Now, I know that we're not supposed to have our favorites uh, out of you know, children and, and, and people that we serve, and like, I don't know, teachers, and all. you're supposed to love everybody the same. And, and uh, is that a thing for teachers? I don't know. I know for parents it's supposed to be that way. You're supposed to treat everybody uh, equally and such things. I had favorite campers. I really did. <laughs> um, and I don't know why some of them were my favorites, but one of them for sure uh, was a young guy by the name of Cody. And my, uh, my memory of him is, is uh, I don't know exactly how old he was. I want to say he was around 12 or 13. Um, and he was kind of a rougher kid. He was tall for his age. He was pretty gangly. <laughs> he was fairly awkward and goofy, and he would sometimes say uh, incredibly inappropriate things. <laughs> but he was joyful in his spirit. He was not mean-hearted uh, in the things that he did. If he said something that was considered mean, I think it was mostly because he just wasn't aware. And he was just so great for us as a cabin. Uh, I took great joy in him. He made me laugh a lot, and that means something to me. I enjoy laughter. I enjoy being with people uh, that make me laugh. I love making other people laugh. Uh, and so Cody, for me, was an incredible blessing. We, uh, in our camp, would do, I think we had a, a morning chapel, and then after morning chapel would always be devotions. And we had been given, uh, in our cabins, you know, you would have each each day of the week for five days, you had a certain passage you were to cover, and it was to sort of go and build on the theme that the camp had, and, and hopefully the speaker was paying attention to, and I remember coming to uh, the middle of the week, uh, and it was that time at camp where we were to make the, uh, where the speaker was making the presentation about the cross, and that we then in our cabins were, were doing something similar, and I remember coming to the study of uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't remember what the main point of our actual study was. Maybe to show us um, Jesus' determination to, to head to the cross, to face the cross. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, if, if you're not familiar with the story, it is just as Jesus was about to be betrayed, he was distraught. He was heavy-hearted. And uh, he brings some of his disciples with him, and they're praying in the garden, and he says to God, if there's any other way than what I know is before me, if there's any other way for me to do this other than facing the cross, do it. Uh, but not my will, but your will be done. And I remember reading that for our cabin, knowing what it is that Jesus was to face, uh, you know, the very next day uh, after he had prayed that prayer. And I remember being overwhelmed with this sense of, being impressed by Jesus. <laughs> like, I, it's, it's, it's so weak even to say that, but just being overwhelmed with the sense that Jesus knew what was coming his way. Jesus knew what it is that he had signed on for. Jesus knew what was to happen the very next day, what it is that he was to face, what it is that he was to suffer, and he still chose to do that. And I began then explaining for our cabin um, a little bit of what Jesus would face physically, right? And so we talk about 
um, the, the whipping that he received, that, that he uh, was whipped a number of times and that the whip was something that was filled with, uh, from the way people study it and say it, um, glass and nails and, and, and things like that that would rip apart his back, that he was then uh, forced to walk uh, a long, long way bearing the, the weight of this cross on his already raw back, that he had a crown of thorns, really big thorns, jammed on his head, experiencing this kind of physical discomfort, that then he was then nailed to the cross with nails through his wrists, and then one, I think, through, through the, the, the uh, just above the feet. And that as he hung on the cross, because of the way that the nails were and, and, and the way that things were, that every breath that he took, he had to sort of lift himself up. That there would be pain behind every breath that he took. Because as he lifted, the nails would rub. And that this is sort of the physical pain that Jesus experienced. And I unpack this just as I did for you, but, but uh, a little bit more so for uh, the youth in my cabin. And then said to them, like, this is amazing that it's in facing this and knowing that this is coming that Jesus still says God take this away but if this is the only way then then I want your will and not mine and Jesus went to the cross for us and I said to them for you like this was done for you and then I gave them time I uh I was done pretty quickly and just said to them, like, you guys have a beautiful camp here. Go and find a quiet place. Other people are just in their cabins. And, and, and maybe open up your Bibles. Maybe read the account of the crucifixion. Maybe just sit there and pray. And I remember then, uh, after giving them that time and myself, taking some time and, and sort of working through my own emotions and the things that had overwhelmed me, that Cody uh, came back. Uh, and he was... Just his face was just lit up. He was so excited and so happy. And he said, Jim, 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 or my camp name, which whatever. Uh, <clears throat> I gave my life to Jesus. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I was really happy. Was, I wasn't like, oh, okay, whatever. Uh, I was happy for him. I hadn't told him to do that, so I was a little bit like, not, you know, confused. I'm sure it had been something that other people had said, but he then went into the story that he went just down and, and uh, he just found a quiet place and as he was just sitting there in silence and praying, he said that God just really spoke to him and met him and, and asked him and said, like, give me your life. And Cody just happily, like, just gave it over. And it was uh, this beautiful moment in my own life. I don't have very many stories where I've been directly involved in someone uh, coming to Jesus for the very first time. As I work in a church, a lot of the times it's helping people discover something new about Jesus or working through something that they're experiencing in their own life, uh, but coming to Jesus for the first time. I don't have very many stories where I've been involved in that, and so this story with Cody is one of my favorite things. It's one of my favorite things because it speaks of the power of God to guide people into what it is that they need to do, what it is that they need to uh, hear, and what it is that they need to say as they come to him and, 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 and give their life to him. And it speaks to me of the profound truth of the cross, that there's power in uh, the sacrificial act that Jesus did uh, for each of us. Jesus uh, is the center of Christianity. <clears throat> He's not the only thing to our faith, uh, but he is the central figure and he is the focal point, right? that he is our perfect picture of God, 
that all things have been created by him, all things have been created for him, all things hold together because of him. The Old Testament points to him. The rest of the New Testament beyond the Gospels points back to him and, and clarifies things about him and points us towards uh, the future of him. That we in the Christian and Missionary Alliance would refer to ourselves as Christ-centered, that Jesus is at the center uh, of the things that we do. And so we pursue Jesus, we talk about Jesus, we study Jesus, we long to know Jesus, and we look to tell others about Jesus. And then we would say, and, and some could argue this, but we would say that the cross uh, is the center of Jesus' ministry, is the center of Jesus' life. It's not the only thing uh, in the good news, it's not the only thing in the gospel but the center is, or the, the center of it is the cross. That there is obviously uh, the, the resurrection that is significant. There is his birth that is significant. Jesus' ascension into heaven, which somehow seemed to unleash the Holy Spirit for all to be able to experience, not just a few. There is uh, Jesus' return, uh, which is imminent, which means any time. <laughs> It is also his life and his teaching and his ministry on this earth that all of these things are significant within the life of Jesus, but the cross is the focal point. His death on the cross, his suffering on our behalf, is what has enabled us to be forgiven. It is what has enabled us to be made right with God. It is what has enabled us to be healed of sickness and to walk in abundant and eternal life. In Matthew chapter 27, which is... Um, the, the verse that we're going to take a, a bit of a closer look at, uh, after Jesus dies, right as he dies, it refers to the veil in the temple as being torn in two. And the veil was the thing that was there that separated people from the Holy of Holies in the temple, which is where the very presence of God was said to dwell, and that there was only the the uber high priest or whatever who could go in there uh, to be in the presence of God. And that when Jesus died, it says, that veil was torn in two. That the barrier between humanity and, and God was removed. Right? There's significance there. That that occurred uh, not in the resurrection, that that didn't occur in the ascension, but that occurred in Jesus' death at the cross. We would say that the cross is the center uh, of Jesus' life and ministry, that we, as God's people, worship a crucified God. He did not stay crucified, but his crucifixion is an essential part of his character. He still bears the scars. It's essential uh, in, in who it is that we worship. And we can be described as a crucified people, that to gain our lives, we must lose them, that we are to bear our crosses, that we are to die to self, and come alive to Christ. That's the reason that we take a device of torture and we put it up in our churches or we hang it around our necks. The cross is the center of what we are. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this thing that for years is shameful because it has put so many people to death. I am not ashamed of what God has taken and used for his glory. We are a people of the cross. So in preparation for Easter, this is all kind of an intro to the, 
to what we're then going to talk about. Uh, in preparation for Easter, we're going to take four weeks now, and we're going to look at four uh, specific things that, see, that Jesus says uh, as he hangs from the cross. Because the cross is significant, and we think that the things that Jesus would say as he hangs from the cross would be significant as well. And so we want to prepare ourselves, I think, for uh, the celebration that is the resurrection that we celebrate at Easter. Uh, but we want to be keeping our eyes on the cross as we, as we kind of march down that road. And the very first thing that we're going to be looking at is found in Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 46. And it is this. <clears throat> Jesus called out in a loud voice. So at noon, uh, after Jesus had been crucified, he is hanging on the cross. It says that darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And at about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you uh, forsaken or why have you abandoned me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me. So this is taken from Psalm 22, which Jillian, thank you so much, read for us uh, earlier uh, within, uh, just before I came up. And, and you can see that the psalm that this is taken from is uh, this, this mixture of sorrow and despair, but also uh, victory and trust and, and faith. And this is actually where Jesus takes this from, that he quotes the very first line. Uh, in Psalm number 22 as he hangs from the cross. Now, sometimes we pick sermon topics because there's something that is, is burning, I think, within us, and other times we pick it because we know that we want to talk about stuff. And I know that we wanted to talk about the cross, and this seemed appropriate. Um, as I came to this phrase, I was really wishing that maybe Waylon had taken this one. <laughs> because there's... The word abandoned is really troublesome within this passage. The word forsaken is really kind of mind-bending uh, if you think about it uh, more and more and more and as you dive into it. So never mind, not never mind, but for now never mind, that, that Jesus is God, <clears throat> and as he's hanging on the cross, he says to God, you have abandoned me? And how does God leave God? How does God abandon God? Never mind that. <laughs> but Jesus, then, who has always had, within the Gospels, within what it is that we see within Scripture, perfect intimacy with the Father. Perfect intimacy with the Father. Refers to him by the name Abba, which is sort of like referring to him as Daddy something that people did not refer to God as because it was viewed as disrespectful, a little bit over-familiar, but this is the word that Jesus used for the Father. <clears throat> he is now, as he hangs from the cross, he says that he is abandoned by that Father. In this very moment, which is potentially a moment that he would need God the most. This is troublesome. <laughs> If you look at it and, and you think about Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This becomes quite troublesome. And so it made me ask a couple of questions, and I'll maybe run through this kind of quickly because there's other more important things to get to, I think. But does God 
Does God abandon people? It made me ask that question. Does God abandon people? Because it doesn't necessarily fit within some of the theology that I have and within the understanding of God that I have. And so I, I searched around a little bit in Deuteronomy chapter 31. You don't have to follow along with everything. You can maybe write it down if you want to take a look at it later because I will be sort of moving through quickly. But Deuteronomy 31, verses 6, and then again in verse 8 says, So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before your enemies. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. So he says to the Israelites at this point in time, maybe just in this moment, well, God won't fail you and he won't abandon you. But we often take those kind of sayings and say, oh, this applies to uh, a lot more than just this one moment. And so God says, I will neither fail you uh, nor will I abandon you. In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, at the very end of it, after he tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, he says, be sure of this. I am with you always. Always. Not most of the time, <laughs> or some of the time, or depending if you're following in my will. Um, I am with you always. So another, another kind of verse that we have there. Psalm chapter 37, uh, both again in verses 25 and 28, uh, the psalmist says, Once I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. In verse then 28, for the Lord loves justice and he will never abandon the godly. And so we do have a lot within scripture that says, well, no, God doesn't abandon people. God doesn't leave people. God doesn't forsake people. Okay. But then you have different language. Romans chapter one, starting in verse 28, Paul says, since people thought it foolish to acknowledge God, and this is, I think, specifically referring to Israelites, God's people. So since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. And so you have language here where God, where Paul is saying of God that he has abandoned people to the things that they want to do, in essence. Right? So, so we have within Scripture God saying, I'm not going to abandon you. But then you have Paul saying, well, God abandoned people. And specifically, it seems as though, as I said, that God... Because we have turned our backs on him, he has let us kind of carry on in that direction. If that, if that sounds fair. Like in that instance, that's where, I think, that's where I think Paul is referring to and that he is letting us face our consequences. And so in that instance, God is abandoning us uh, because we have abandoned him. He's letting us have our way. Um, that he withdraws his presence uh, from people to let them suffer. You would have other language within the Old Testament, I, I imagine, too, and I kind of ran out of time to research it, 
more that, that would sort of bring up uh, the, the abandoning of God and different things along those lines. But I would probably say that in most situations, it comes when people turn their backs on God. <clears throat> that that is when you have God saying, okay. And you have something that looks like the abandonment of God. You would say actually within history though too that there are times where God withdraws his presence for a purpose. That God withdraws either his, uh, the way you, you can feel his presence or hear his voice so that you can learn something, so that you can repent of something, so that you can change something within your life or so that you can even grow stronger because when his palpable presence does return, you are uh, so filled that you haven't, as, in a way that you haven't been filled before. <clears throat> but then what we saw in Psalm 35 is that the psalmist writes, well, God doesn't abandon the godly. So why would Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? For he is godly. Sorry, this feels like a dramatic pause, but I just really needed to drink. <laughs> We've taken some theology from, I think, this verse, and then from a couple of passages in First Peter that would say, and you see it within uh, one, of our, one of the creeds, actually. Like, uh, there are a couple of creeds that were written uh, uh, um, centuries ago that sort of are, that we use to say, these are the important things within our faith. And, and the one that is... Uh, I think maybe more elaborate includes this, or maybe they both do, the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Anyway, I should have researched this too. But within these creeds and within some of our theology, we have this idea or this understanding that when Jesus died on the cross, that his spirit um, descended to hell. Is this familiar? Do we, do we, we've heard this sort of being said? This idea that, that, that Jesus, uh, spirit anyway, went, went down to hell, into a place of torment uh, and separation from God, and that this is actually what Jesus is crying out. This is what it is that he's experiencing when he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That in that moment, for Jesus somehow to be in hell or to get to hell that, that the rest of the Trinity sort of needed to remove themselves from him. It gets very confusing. There's a lot of questions that, that I have sort of in, in looking at this. And I'm not, I'm not doing away with it. I'm not saying this is not, this is not true or this is not the way. But I do have uh, some questions that kind, of long, that kind of come along with this. How could a member of the Trinity um, be somewhere where the others are not? How can they be separate from one another? Even though they are each uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their own person, they are all so intimately linked to one another that really you could say there is no one thing that one of them do that the other two are not intimately involved in. So how come in this instance we would maybe say, oh, well, no, that's just it's just Jesus who, who went to hell and then defeated death in that sense. I'm pretty sure that the Father and the Spirit helped out. Um, Jesus obviously didn't leave behind part of his divinity. It's not as though God abandoned Jesus as a person and then the person of Jesus went to hell. He is fully divine, has always been divine, and will always continue to be divine. It's not like a part of him went to hell. Um, and if, but then if not, 
if not this place of, of torment and, and suffering, of separation from God, if, if that's not where Jesus went, then, then where did his spirit go? You know, for three days as Jesus was dead and, and then he rose again, where was his spirit uh, at that point in time? And then that's where you have uh, sort of these couple of verses that come in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and then chapter 4 where it says, of Jesus, so he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed God long ago uh, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. This idea that after Jesus died, it says that he went and preached to the spirits in prison is what it's referred to. And then again, verse um, 6, that is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So this idea then that, that Jesus descended to hell, to the place of, of torment and suffering, to tell those who before had been faithful but had not heard about Jesus, uh, to tell them about himself so that they could uh, then, then, you know, in the end judgment, be able to experience uh, true, eternal, and abundant life. A lot of questions. There's a lot of questions, and I'm not really providing you answers, which is probably frustrating to you. It's frustrating to me, too. Um, but I hope that you can maybe appreciate the complexity of this passage as we sort of look at it. Like the gospel and the good news is, is simple in the sense that we can grasp it, children can grasp it and understand it, but at the same case, it's complex. That as you dive deeply into it, there are many questions that are there, and that's why people can get multiple PhDs trying to figure out how this stuff all works together. That there is both of these things in here. And so perhaps it's the complexity of this, of this um, idea of, of Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Trying to figure out what this means and how Jesus can say God has abandoned him that has led some to say, well, Jesus is just quoting the beginning of Psalm 22, but what he really means for us is to pay attention to the whole thing is to take into account that the whole thing is there and that Jesus is just quoting the beginning. And we then think, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So he's going to suffer and then, you know, oh, I see this prophecy kind of fulfilled here and this prophecy fulfilled. But then there's victory at the end and, and all these good things are sort of coming. Um, and we kind of use that to sort of explain it away. But I think that this in part cheapens what Jesus actually says here. Because what Jesus actually says is a declaration of despair, abandonment, pain, and suffering. That's what I think we have. Whether or not Jesus was physically, actually, spiritually abandoned by God, Jesus is telling us uh, what it is that he's experiencing on the cross. Okay? I think what we have here is Jesus saying, I'm suffering. This is bad. <laughs> this is hard. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is physically suffering, as I've already talked about um, in the beginning, and, and as, as many of us are aware through, through different movies and, and different things that we've read, there is and was incredible uh, physical suffering that Jesus went through as he faced the cross. What I'm coming to realize more as I, as I, uh, as I age and I get older is that there is and would have been intense emotional suffering uh, for Jesus at the cross as well. He was, as uh, the, the full example of what humanity is to be, Jesus was an emotional being. And there is no way that what he experienced 
uh, as he faced the cross and as he was being marched towards the cross and the things that were leading up to that did not hurt him emotionally. That it did not provide some wounds in his heart that obviously were dealt with, but that he suffered emotionally. You just have to look at Matthew chapter 7 to see the things that Jesus faced and put yourself in that position and say, what if I faced these things? What if I faced uh, one of the people who were close to me betraying me so that I would then be put on trial and killed? Selling me out for a little bit of silver. What would that do to my soul? What did that do to Jesus' soul? What about Peter denying Jesus and Jesus being aware that Peter had said, I don't know him. What about being put on trial and having to face people who you loved and probably still loved saying untrue things about you? Accusing you of doing things that you did not do so that you could face a death that you do not deserve. There's potential for this to fill you with a sense of shame, to fill you with a sense of powerlessness, to fill you with a sense of despair, and to fill you with a sense of anger. What about mockery? Soldiers making fun of him, hitting him, and, and, and not believing anything that he said about himself. And then abandonment. He did experience abandonment. He's prayed that, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But also he could say, my friends, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? That this is emotional suffering that Jesus would have faced as he faced the cross. And lastly, he would have faced intense spiritual suffering, soul suffering. As he's already said, the feelings of abandonment, feeling abandoned by God, that is something that can damage a soul, that can hurt a soul. Not damage that stuck with Jesus, obviously, but not something that he didn't experience. God, where are you? And then on top of that, it says in, in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 24, that Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. That one of the things that occurred on the cross is that Jesus bore the weight of our sins. That somehow, in some way, it's like the sin of the world was transferred onto Jesus. A crushing weight. And something that likely up till that point in time, if, if you think theologically about this, Jesus being sinless something that he has not experienced before. He has not experienced, other than as he's seen it in other people, which is an experience, but he himself has not felt personally the crushing weight and oppression of sin. You know it. We all know it. Like the weight of guilt over things that we've done wrong or things that are right that we've left undone. Panic or anxiety in your inner being over being found out because you've done something. The fear that God may punish you or come down on you because of something that you've done. I believe on the cross that these are likely things that Jesus experienced as he bore our sin. 
And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He is speaking of the intense suffering, multifaceted suffering that he is experiencing. And as I pointed out to my cabin, I'm going to point it out to you. He did this for you. He suffered for us. Romans chapter 5, Paul says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Christ suffered and died for us. And he looked at us and said that we were worth it. He tasted sin and death so that we could live forever in freedom and abundant eternal life. He did this for us. What should we do with this? What should we do with the good news of Jesus Christ? I think that it's fitting to turn to the book of Malachi um, to see what it is that God would say to us. Malachi, as, as, we, as we dedicated uh, Malachi Clicks this morning, and he was named after the prophet who wrote the last book of the Old Testament. And within this book of the Old Testament, Malachi writes about uh, the displeasure of God when it comes to the sacrifices of his people. And the displeasure of God is focused on uh, the imperfect gifts that people are giving. In the sacrificial system, which was to be followed in the Old Testament, no longer in the New Testament, because Jesus, as we point out, is the ultimate sacrifice, uh, people were to provide animals for a sacrifice to God, to cover over sins, to give uh, thanks, to do different things. Uh, and those animals were uh, said that they needed to be without blemish, that they were to be perfect, that they were to be the best uh, that a person could offer. But what Malachi is writing in, in the beginning, in chapter 1, is that people are offering to God blind uh, and, and crippled and diseased animals as an offering. That they're kind of getting rid of things that they don't really want or that they don't really need. And that it's not something that really costs them very much because it's not something that they really want anymore. And so Malachi says that God's response to this is how I wish you would just shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you. That so often, we can offer to God what is less than perfect in our lives. And now we all live less than perfect lives. And I think the only thing of incredible worth that we would have to give to God 
is everything that we are. But so often I think, and I know this to be true of myself, we give our good works. We say, God, look what I've done for you. This is my offering. But we withhold our heart. We give our money, which is good to give to God, but we hold back our history, we hold back our uh, concerns, we hold back our emotions, and we just give him money and say, God, take this. This is my offering to you. We give to him time. We say, okay, I'm going to come to church. I'm going to give you 15 minutes in the morning, but I'm going to withhold so much more. (laughs) The only thing The main thing that God wants is your life. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God, to give your everything to God, because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. That as we give to God our heart, as we give to God our life, as we give to God everything that we are, he'll have our money, he'll have our good works, and he'll have our time, which he is grateful for, but ultimately, if we were to give him those things without giving him our heart, without giving him our best that we have, it's not enough. God wants our hearts, he wants our devotion, he wants our full and total attention, he wants our lives. And this is our response. This is our response to God, and this is what I am going to invite you to respond with today. Uh, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up, and they have two songs for us to sing. And as we sing, I would invite you um, to stand, If you feel unable to stand, that's okay. But I would invite you to stand, to reflect on what it is that God would have you to do. Maybe there are things that you've been holding back from him. Maybe, uh, as somebody has said, our our body is a living sacrifice and that it crawls off the altar quite often. Um, There are things that you need to re-give to God. Maybe there are ways in your life that, that you have just been giving to God these lesser sacrifices and he has been asking you, he has been poking you, he's been prodding you and saying like, there's so much more that I want from you. And we're going to give you this space to come forward and pray. You don't have to, but there sure is something significant about taking a step forward. And it's not about the people here noticing who's come. We shouldn't really be thinking about that too much because all of us need to be thinking about what God would have us to do in this point in time too. But if you've been feeling a little bit of a pull, a little bit of a push, a little bit of God kind of hammering in something on you, don't let this moment slip by. 
but come. I mean, you can come to the, to the front. Nobody likes to sit in the front anyway, so they're open. <laughs> you can come and you can sit and you can pray. You can come and you can kneel uh, on the floor. You can come and you can, you can kneel on the steps or whatever it may be, but there's space open for you to come and to deal with God, to let him deal with you, and he is so kind and he is so merciful in how he deals with us. If you want to be left alone, I would recommend kind of hanging out in the middle portion. Um, and I'd ask that if you want somebody to pray with you, myself, Waylon, or others, you would like to be noticed. Um, if you could kind of hang out on the sides, um, then somebody will come over and pray with you. God can lead you in how it is you can pray and should pray. But uh, if you need somebody else, which is completely normal and okay, uh, we'd love to be there for you as well. So Rick, as you sing, um, I want you guys, as you feel led by God or pulled by God, um, don't fight, just come.